Janet Yellen's got her finger on the trigger, JP Morgan's got connections, and on Wall Street, there's no place like home. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, as we're doing this show, our fellow fools are all the way downstairs eating a Thanksgiving lunch. Thanks for reminding me. What, what, are, you, what are you missing the most? What is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Got to go with the stuffing. Stuffing? Stuffing. Because, I mean, you don't have it. You, have, you can have turkey multiple times a year. You don't have stuffing that often. That what makes sense. You? It's a bland choice. I what, what about you? <laughs> it's, dude, it's the sweet potatoes okay, with, the, with the marshmallows, with the crusty marshmallows on top. I don't top. like the marshmallows. I like the nuts in there, though. No marshmallows. We've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> All right, let's go to the headlines. Uh, first headline comes from Bloomberg. The headline is Yellen says economy performing far short of potential, that Yellen is Janet Yellen, the potential successor to Ben Bernanke um, for Fed chairman, or chairwoman, I guess I should say. Uh, If anything, it sounds like Yellen is prepared to do more to stimulate the economy, to get it back on track. She thinks it's well below its potential, would like to see it back on its potential before uh, starting to tail back some of the accommodative uh, stuff that the Fed has been doing. She did say that housing seems to have turned the corner, and that the auto industry has made, as she puts it, an impressive comeback. Um, th- but this, this potentially pushes the timetable out on the, on the taper and on higher rates in general. I, I would think that this is potentially, I, I think it's bad news for the banks, for insurance companies who are hoping for higher rates to, um, to, to boost their income. Do you think that there's any particular bank that you'd be concerned about if the rate rate taper schedule? I think it would be more so the regional banks that, that rely more on actually making money off loans and the interest there. But the banks want this as long as there's a healthy economy behind the rising rates. They don't want rates to go up and the economy to do poorly. That's not really good for them either. Point. Um, so I'm going to say, yeah, I mean, here, here's a full disclosure. Janet Yellen's a lot smarter than me, and a lot of the people at the Fed are a lot smarter than me. I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> so if they say the, comp- the economy is not at full potential, I'm going to say, okay, I trust that they're going to do, based on the data they have, what they think they should do. Yeah, I, in, terms of, in terms of the companies, I, I think you're right. If, if we look at the, the split between interest income, non-interest income, mm-hmm. bigger banks like U.S. Bancorp get, get a lot of income from non-interest, yep. non, non-interest side of things. Wells Fargo, same kind of deal. But then some of the smaller banks are more reliant on just the interest income. Exactly. All right, moving on to Number the two. second headline. This is another Fed guy. Fed's Bernanke pushes higher bank capital, better pay practices. And... I think some bank investors see that headline and say, oh, man, higher capital ratios, more scrutiny on the bank's management team. That's a terrible thing for us. I don't think it is. I think I would agree with Bernanke that those are probably good things in the long run for bank investors. Higher capital, okay, maybe that'll make returns a little bit harder to get in the short run and in the long run even. But a safer bank management team that has their incentives aligned correctly and properly, that's a good thing for shareholders, in my opinion. So... I don't think all regulation is a terrible thing. I don't think we should look at it that way. So I'm going to say, yeah, I agree with Ben here. Nothing to add. What's the next headline? All right, next headline. Moving on to, this one is from Dealbook. It says, J.P. Morgan's fruitful ties to a member of China's elite. So we obviously heard about the J.P. Morgan scandal. Is it a scandal yet? No. Oh, it's a scandal. A scandal of allegedly hiring, colluding to hire Chinese children of prominent officials. What is this article talking about? 
Well, essentially, what ended up happening was J.P. Morgan hired a consultancy, and the consultancy was the consultancy of uh, Lily Chang. Now, Lily Chang was an alias for Wen Ruchun. I hope I'm saying that right. Wen Ruchun was the daughter, or is the daughter, of Wen Jiabao, who was the former prime minister of China. So this kind of extends the story of J.P. Morgan hiring high-placed individuals mm-hmm. in order to try to uh, score business. And, and they got business from uh, the privatization of, of Chinese enterprises. So this doesn't look too good for J.P. Morgan. They're, they're paying, I think they were paying around $900,000 a year to Miss Chang's consultancy. Which had, I think, two employees? Yeah, think which is kind of, kind of a lot of money. <laughs> now, there are a lot of things that look bad about this. However... Consider that this alias thing, the alias for the, the prime minister's daughter, this is, it, it looks to be the kind of thing that was done for her safety. She came over to the U.S. to go to school, and you, you want to kind of keep a low profile if mm-hmm. you're the, the daughter of a prime minister. She went to school at the University of Delaware, I think it was. She also got, a, she got an MBA. She worked for Lehman Brothers. She worked for Credit Suisse, First Boston, before starting up this consultancy. So this, it's not like this is a, a, a random... Uh, a layabout right. who, who daughter just, that lives in the basement that <laughs> exactly and it's like here's nine hundred thousand yeah. dollars and and frankly nine hundred thousand dollars while they were saying in the article is above what uh what, what typical investment bankers might make in mm-hmm. in china when we think about it here in the u.s nine hundred thousand dollars is not an excessively high uh payment for for an investment banker and she's obviously got experience so there's that also, here is th- this is I'm going to read a little bit from the article here. It says there is no indication from the documents reviewed by the Times that Miss Wen brokered any of the deals or investments between J.P. Morgan and the companies affiliated with her family, and it is unclear whether J.P. Morgan employees even knew about her family's ties to some of these companies, because the Wen family often held secret stakes in companies through little-known investment vehicles. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what you have here is they've identified that J.P. Morgan hired uh, a, a consultancy with the prime minister's daughter and that J.P. Morgan got deals from the government, which looks bad. But right. when you consider the fact that J.P. Morgan is the, one of the largest or maybe the largest investment bank in the world, having those two things occur is not as much of a weird coincidence as it might seem. Yeah, it's not like it was mom and pop investment bank getting a huge deal in China exactly. that had two employees here in the U.S. I mean, this is, like you said, the world's largest investment bank. So not, not, not to, not to the lines on, blur a little bit here. Not, not to pick on your pals over at uh, Evercore. I know you're a big fan of Evercore, but if Evercore went over mm-hmm. here, went over to China, and all of a sudden out of the, out of the starting line is scoring Chinese privatization deals, um, that... That might be a little bit sh- more strange, right. but J.P. Morgan going over not not as much. To J.P. Morgan shareholders, all of this may start to seem like piling on, and I can understand that as a J.P. Morgan shareholder myself. But I think big picture, I think this is good. I think it's good to have people out there digging this stuff up and making business leaders understand that they're going to be held accountable, even if this turns out to, to be nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think bigger picture, longer term, to ha- to have it in the back of their head that somebody is going to be rooting around trying to dig this kind of stuff up, I think that's good for American business. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hopefully. All right, moving on to the last headline. Last headline. Wall Street Journal. This is on Wall Street. No place like home. This is talking about Goldman Sachs. The employee tenure among senior employees at Goldman Sachs has lengthened. Now over nine years, it was 7.6 years 
in 2001. Essentially, this is Goldman keeping people around longer, encouraging them to stay around longer. I think that this is a win for Goldman. I think this is a win for investment banks in general. When uh, when I was in the business, albeit at a, at a lower, much lower level of the business than, than the partner level, um, it, a lot of the banks were seen as interchangeable. You could jump from one bank to the next. It was whoever gave you the, the nicest pay package. If there's more of a tie to a certain firm saying, I want to stay here for my career, this lets Goldman and other firms hang on to better employees. I think this is in particular a win for the uh, companies with better uh, reputations like a Goldman because they're going to attract the, the best employees and they're going to be able to hold on to them longer. I agree. There you go. All right, moving on to our focus for today. The focus is going to be on uh, Bruce Berkowitz, our pal Bruce Berkowitz, and a new plan. We mentioned this on the show yesterday his plan for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and how to deal with the government ownership and the fact that he and a bunch of other folks own preferred shares mm-hmm. and they'd like to see some action happening. Now, you and I have been through the slide deck that Berkowitz put out. That's on the Fairhome website. So any of our viewers or listeners who, who want more information on this deal, go to the Fairhome website. Mm-hmm. He's got the entire plan laid out there. My first reaction, this is, this is looking to break off the operating part of the business and put it in the hands of private investors and leave the portfolio of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in, in the hands of the government to run it off. Mm-hmm. So my first reaction is, is this plan been put in place? Is he pushing for this plan now because he doesn't think that the legal case against the government is as strong as they thought it was before? I think it, it sounded like that. I think there were some terms or some sentences in the proposal that says this is a better win than any litigation possible outcome there if this happens. So it's possible we, we don't have a line to Bruce Berkowitz to ask him, hey, do you just are you doing this because there's no other avenue? But here? he can but- let us know. Because yeah. I assume he's probably he's probably watching, watching. Um, or maybe on podcast. Uh, he's probably listening. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting plan. So, do you want to go over kind of just the high level? What's he even proposing here uh, for the long run, in terms of what happens to the, the shareholders today, whether they be common? Right, right, or right. So, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are currently in conserv- conservatorship, being run by the government. Right, and, and, and I'm going to cut some corners here. But essentially, what this does is it looks at two different buckets. It's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the operating businesses, the businesses that, that take the, mor- the mortgages, put them into securities, and, uh, and insure them. Mm-hmm. Uh, insure them against, in- insure the investors against losses. And then there's the bucket that's everything that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac ha- have already done. Uh, everything they've already insured, all of the assets on the balance sheet. Um, the one bucket, the bucket of the assets, that stays with the government. Mm-hmm. They're assuming that that will be nicely profitable and the government can run that off and continue to collect a profit um, on the investment that the government made in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That bucket would also get potentially pass some money off to the common shareholders. Mm-hmm. So the, the government would be an 80% common shareholder if, if it converted its, its warrants and whatnot. Uh, it would be an 80% common shareholder in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They would get 80% of the additional profits right. from those assets. And, and when I say additional profits, it's a very gray area because mm-hmm. Berkowitz essentially said that the government would be able to run down this portfolio, collect what it had put into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Plus a, a fair profit. Fair profit, that whatever that means. Used? Yep. And then after the fair profit, everything after that would go 80-20 between the government and the common shareholders. The other bucket, the operating assets, this goes into a new company. 
This pulls over, I think it's like $32 billion in, uh, in preferred stock. This, this converts the current preferred stock in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and let, let me point out, that's 100% fair value, or, or face value, mm-hmm. I should say. Pulls that all over, converts it to common, brings over assets related to that. So it capitalizes it with that 30, $32 billion or so, and then there would be another $17 billion in uh, a rights offering to additionally capitalize. So, tra- so translation, people that are holding preferreds today, which are trading at a 60% discount to par, would get par value. Uh, would get 100% par value in this new company. Right. Would get and 100% then, par value. And then the people that hold common shares today would be entitled to potentially profits from the runoff organization, and they may be offered uh, a chance to get in, in on the rights offering with the new entity. So there may be some light at the end of the tunnel for common shareholders in this scenario. But we should note that Bruce Berkowitz has submitted this proposal. He sent a letter to the FHFA. This is just a proposal. And I don't know if, if this really has legs to, to, to actually happen. Mm-hmm. The, the proposal makes sense. You read it, and he really he covers his bases here. He says... Okay, this system works. If you want to completely take the government out of the equation, we have a system that can do that. If you want to have a federal reinsurance program at the backstop, this program can work with it. So he really is trying to appease everyone. He's trying to appease Democrats, Republicans, and I think it's done that. But the question of this actually getting done on such favorable terms Mm -hmm. is still pretty much up in the air, and I don't know how likely it is to happen in in the end. Right. I, I actually agree with you. I think that it does make a lot of sense to because you've got operating companies here. You've yeah, and that's what the, and that's what they with, point with systems and processes in place. And there's value there for sure. Yeah, and even even though those systems and processes may not have worked out well during, it, it's still there. And if you split that off, you can keep the company running. You can keep these people employed uh, and potentially do something with that as opposed to just have it go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I think that does make sense, but. Um, the, the, the reality of it still is, is the government going to be willing to listen to that, particularly when it's hedge funds and private equity funds coming in here and saying, you know, g- give, this, give this to us uh, on relatively favorable terms or maybe mm-hmm. very favorable Favor- terms. Very favorable. But I think if you're a shareholder, whether it be preferred or common, I think you do feel a little bit better today with this proposal floating out there than, than you did before, before it wasn't out there. I don't think it's going to solve all really, the problems. Do you really either way? I think you feel slightly better that you have this formal, formal, I'm not, that I haven't ironed out everything with the legal stuff of it, a formalized kind of, this is what we can do, these are some options. I think you feel a little bit better rather than the FHFA and the government just saying, we're not listening to anything, we don't want your, we don't want your ideas, we're taking all the profits. So I think you feel a little bit better that people are at least talking about it. Well, one side's talking about it. One side's saying something. Right. It's, it's remains it's a question whether, whether the other right. side is listening. I think that if I'm a holder of the preferred, I feel I feel a bit better mm-hmm. after seeing this because it is a proposal that makes sense and and could be convincing. Uh, and as I've said in the past, if you if you put a gun to my head and said you got to buy one or the other, the preferred shares or the common shares mm-hmm. of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I go preferred share, preferred shares. I think that there was potentially more value there. The common shareholders. It's all very murky, and mm-hmm. the way that Berkowitz laid out this plan 
the common shareholders are clearly an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Clearly. There's there's barely a mention of what happens there. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe they could get a yeah. little bit of this mm-hmm. down the road. Um, so I'm almost feeling maybe a little bit more uneasy if I'm a common shareholder today versus a preferred shareholder. And let me point out, let me point out that I know that there are viewers and that there are listeners who don't like to hear us talking the way that we do about particularly the common shares of Fannie and Freddie. And I can totally appreciate that. But we don't have a hand in the outcome here. <laughs> you and I are just looking at, looking at the facts, looking at what we see, and trying to figure out what the reality of the situation is here. We may be wrong. But that's our job. We're trying to we're trying to figure it out just like everybody else. All right. Well, moving on. After everyone's probably falling asleep who's listening who doesn't care about Fannie Mae. Come on. But that's this okay. is, I think legitimately this is something that everybody should care about, even if you're not a shareholder. I, I think it's an interesting situation, Very and interesting. It's, there are a lot of thorny issues here. There you go. All right. Moving on to something a little more, a little more fun. The mailbag. Yeah, the mailbag. <laughs> you're gonna be okay. I'm going to be okay. Hot and bothered. All right. <laughs> I get fired on. up about Fannie and Fred. All right. We had a question from Mark. He says, I'm 24 and going on seven years in the military. I have a portion of my paycheck going into the military's version of a 401k called the Thrift Savings Plan. The TSP doesn't match any contributions. Should I put my money elsewhere? I would like to invest as much as possible in my future, but don't know where to start. Uh, so first of all, a couple things. Thanks for your service, Mark. We appreciate yeah, you absolutely. being in the Army. That's awesome. And second thing is we can't give him personalized no. advice here, but we can say, in general, what would you do if you were in Mark's situation? We haven't talked about this before. We haven't planned out an answer. What's your answer to Mark? Well, did you, did you get a chance to look at the thrift savings plan? Not extensively. I know high level kind of what the options are. Uh, well, why don't you start with that? What- well, well if, there's, if there's no matching there and the, the government's not matching anything and I think the the investment options are pretty generic. It's kind of a bond fund where you're basically investing in treasuries, uh, kind of just an equity fund, um, an international fund. So I don't think there's a ton of options okay. there. Well, well let, let me say, th- then we can apply this to really anybody that has the option of going into a 401k plan. So I think for one thing, even if there's no match, it's great if there's a match, but even if there's no match, the, the, tax, defer, the tax deferral that you get putting money into a 401k plan is very helpful over the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to defer paying the taxes on your investments is a big deal. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just forget about that. Um, you, you can get some of that through a, an IRA, um, but you can't contribute nearly as much to an IRA. In terms of the options available, I think if you are a uh, very conservative person or don't want to invest a lot of time in your investments, the, the best options typically are index funds. Mm-hmm. So you were saying that there are some generic options there. But sometimes those generic options can be generic managed options. Right. So, so a managed high growth fund or a, a managed global fund or something like that. And those can often have high fees and it's those fees that will really kill you. Mm-hmm. So it's important to look at what the options are in the 401k plan, figure out what the fees are on those funds. And if, if the fees are too high, then it becomes questionable about whether you want to put uh, your money into that. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree slightly. Yeah, go ahead. Slightly. Go I, ahead. I think it is important to contribute to the 401k, even if there's no match there. But he said he's 24 years old. So he's Probably, I mean, he is young. That's, that's a fact. He's 24 years old. He's probably not in a super high tax bracket right now. Mm-hmm. So I, if I were him uh, and I wasn't earning a lot, my tax bracket was pretty low, I would go and max out a Roth IRA, which you pay taxes on before, mm-hmm. and then all of your earnings grow tax-free forever. When you take that out, you don't have to pay any taxes. So I think the, the contribution amount is 
$5,500 there. Mm -hmm. So if he wants to contribute more than that, he can do $5,500 in a Roth and then come back to the, the TSP plan and start contributing to that. If he, then he can get the yeah, tax deferred there. The, so well, the tax implications can be tricky, too, because he's a, he's a soldier, and mm-hmm. that's, that's going to change the situation. And, yeah, and we're not, we're not tax planners. But, right, no. Well, t- to continue on yours, though, is that when, and we worked, um, my wife and I worked with a, um, an investment advisor for, for a little while, and one of the things he suggested was uh, tax diversification. We mm-hmm. talk about diversif- diversifying our portfolios among different funds or different uh, investments. Well, you diversify your tax situation. So uh, do part of it in something that's uh, something like a Roth IRA, Mm -hmm. where you're paying taxes now and not later. Uh, And you do part of it in something that's tax deferred, like a true 401k. Um, So that's an option. But still, in terms of the investment options, I still think that that's really important. Look at what the fees are. Try to get, if you're not investing in individual stocks, try to get index funds that have very, very mm-hmm. low fees. I mean, the, Van, the Vanguard are the best of the best in terms of that. Their fees are ridiculously low. You're paying next to nothing. Um, Say, same with just an, an S&P ETF, SP, sure. SPY. Yeah. I think the expense on that is 0.09%. So essentially, very, very, very little. Uh, so if he was to go and, and look at a Roth IRA, just once it in, in the market, I think that's may be the way to go. That's how I'd probably approach it. Once I max out the Roth, I'd probably go back to the, the TSP. Just because when you're, when you're so young, your tax bracket is likely to be much lower than it is when you're potentially 55, 60 years old. So, so, so just because there's no match doesn't mean that you avoid the TSP? No, no, no. no. I, w- I would definitely go back and, and get the deferred tax as well. Now, now, what if he wanted to go outside of that, buy an individual stock? What, what's, a good, what's a good starter stock on your, on your radar? Good starter stock. Uh, we talk about Banks here on this program a lot, and he's a regular listener. He knows that. I would, I would say Wells Fargo. I don't think it's my best buy right now, but I think it's a well-managed bank. I think you can learn about the banking business. I think Wells Fargo is one to put on your watch list. I'll go with Markel. Markel is a great run insurer. It's a specialty insurer. And what's even better is that they have a management team that is really good about explaining the business and explaining what's going on to their investors. They're very concerned with their investors wanting to know what's going on with the business. So that's a great starter All right. company, in my view. We'll keep the emails rolling in, WTMI at WTMI.com. We'll yep. answer your questions. Going on to the game for today, we've got a little fool in the blank, and we're going to have to do this snappy style because we're running low on time. First, fool in the blank. Blank has the largest potential upside of any bank stock. David, fool in that blank. Well, I don't know every bank stock out there. Come but, on. Uh, I'm going to go with B of I Holding, Bank what? of Internet, and it's very pricey right now. What? And, okay. But when we talk about upside, it's still very, very, very small, and I think the market share, I'm not saying that they're going to do this, but I think there's an enormous okay. opportunity for them to grab market share, make good loans, so... Going with Bank of Internet. What do you say? I'm going to go, and, and I guess you're thinking about, a, as you should, thinking about a bigger time frame than I am. I went with Citigroup. Citigroup trading at 0.9 times tangible book value. I think between uh, return on equity climbing back up for Citigroup and between that valuation getting back up, I think if I look out three years, maybe even five years, pretty good amount of upside with Citigroup, All right. I think. Moving on to the next scenario, fool in the blank. I, I, I actually do like your answer to that last one. All right. It, it's rare that I'll say that. Of course. Blank is the financial stock in my portfolio that keeps me up at night. What's keeping you up? <sighs> Unfortunately, easy answer, JP Morgan. Uh, all of the headlines, I don't, I don't really believe in headline risk per se, but just having this come, come down day after day. So there's, there's part of it that is I'm concerned that 
there will be new regulation. J.P. Morgan will have to hire new people, put new protections in place that will reduce future returns. And part of it, too, is I don't know everything. You can't know everything about what's going on behind the scenes. So there is the possibility that the worst fears of, of the, the fear mongers on J.P. Morgan are true, at least to some extent. All right. London whale night sweats. I'm going with I'm going with BB&T. Not because it's a particularly scary bank, but just from an actual return. Because you should know it. Yeah. Okay. Watch them <laughs> out there. Uh, just from I, I'm not sure not, if not the, very good. if it's attractive right now and the returns are there. Just thinking, what offers me the best upside from a valuation perspective today? I don't know if it's BB&T. So that I roll around and I think about BB&T. I've got, I've got a good solution there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sell it by a better bank. All right. Moving on to finish off in the Twitter sphere. David, first tweet. Hating on BBT. All right. The first one is from American Express. It says, we went back to 1968 for today's peek into the Amex archive. Hashtag TBT throwback Thursday. And the picture is from an ad from 1968, like they said. Uh, I thought we had a picture. Well, we don't have a picture. But uh, it was Why don't 19- you act out the picture? <laughs> it, was a, it was a wallet, and it was from 1968. It looked like an old wallet. How would you, how would you it was act hand, out the wallet? It was a hand holding a credit card. Oh, there it is. We got a picture. Uh, it's a fat wallet. looks like George Costanza's wallet. And it's saying, <laughs> why would you carry around a fat wallet? This is from 1968. And I think it highlights, we, we hear a lot about, okay, wallets are dead. Everything's going mobile. Everything's going plastic. People were saying this in 1968. So we may still not quite be to the, to the place where we're, everything's plastic. Everything's on our phones. Uh, so if, you, if you're one of these credit card people that think, okay, in the next two years, there's going to be no more cash. I don't think that's the case. We still have a long growth runway to go here. All right, number two tweet. We've got Bloomberg, it looked like. Uh, no, we've got Brandon Turner, at Brandon, at BP. I uh, just found $300 in a PayPal account I haven't used in two years. Hashtag awesomeness. That does sound pretty awesome. Yes. That's, that, that, is, that is decidedly better than finding $5 in your jeans. Much better. And that's Brandon Turner over at Bigger Pockets. That's uh, right. Great real estate website there. Uh, when is the last time you found a large chunk of money somewhere? Oh, know? just recently. Be- because it's starting to get cold, so you get your jackets uh, back course. out. $20 in the jacket pocket. I found like a $50 Boom. check for my grandma once. It was like two years old, though. I felt really bad. <laughs> I did cash it, though, full disclosure. Did you let her know? I did let her know. My grandma used to write us checks every year at, uh, at Christmas. And when she would give us the Christmas present, she would, she would like, yell at us every time. Now, you cash this within the next week. And, the, and after a while, when she realized we still wouldn't do it, she would just give the checks to our parents. Oh, and they would do it. And, and, they, and she would say, cash these checks for them. I don't understand why she Grandma just Grandma Copenheffer, cash. she is a savvy lady. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that is the show for today. Yep. Uh, listeners and viewers can tweet at us at... TMF Financials, right? At TMF Financials. Yep. Uh, email us, WTMI at fool.com. And that is all. All right. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.